Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 25, Flesh and Bone. Was the physical body of Jesus raised from the dead, or was he raised with just an immaterial, non-physical, sort of spiritual body, and in which way will the rest of us rise? We're going to answer those questions in this episode in a few minutes. Now, I hadn't planned on recording an episode until after the new year, and as you may recall, even then my plan was to record an episode on justification by faith alone. Well, I had a little bit of time to record an episode before the new year, and plus there's something I find appealing about ending the year with 25 episodes under my belt. I can't really explain why. However, I decided to discuss the resurrection in this episode because, and at risk of being thought poorly of by some of you, I'm being completely honest here, I think the idea of a non-physical, spiritual-only resurrection is easier to refute than the idea of being made uh, made right with God uh, as a result of works. I'm not saying the scripture isn't clear about that, but I think the arguments advanced in favor of that heresy, while in serious error, are nevertheless more challenging, and I want to be able to really do it justice. The bodily resurrection of Jesus and all the dead, on the other hand, at least I think, is more straightforward, so I think I can squeeze it into the time I have now. But first, as we're dealing today with the question of the physicality of the resurrection body, I thought I might point you to a debate I've been having with a friend of mine on the question of physicalism, the view of the human soul shared with us by uh, by Dr. Glenn Peoples in episodes 12, 15, and 16 of my podcast. My friend, Michael Burgos, uh, who appeared in episode 11 to discuss oneness Pentecostalism, and at his website, the Grassroots Apologetics blog, which you can find at uh, www.onenesspentecostal.net, he wrote an article responding to one of Dr. People's arguments entitled, Physicalism, Dualism, and 1 Corinthians 15. Mike also posted the article at www.theologyweb.com, and although I'm still on the fence when it comes to physicalism, I disagreed with the argument my friend presented, and so we've been debating it. If you have some time, I recommend checking the debate out, uh, and I'll post a link in the show notes, but you can find it by going to www.theologyweb.com, clicking on Forum at the top of the page, scrolling down and clicking on Editorial Department. The thread sharing the title of my friend's article, Physicalism, Dualism, and 1 Corinthians 15, should be near the top. I share this not simply because I think you might find our back and forth worthwhile in understanding the debate over physicalism, but because I think it serves as an illustration of how two Christian brothers can disagree lovingly and debate respectfully. I've felt that Mike has consistently been gentle and respectful in expressing his disagreements with me, and I like to think I've reciprocated. I think it really exemplifies how disagreeing Christians can and should dialogue. At the same time, however, I think the thread demonstrates how brothers and sisters in Christ should not debate with one another as a third person began participating who, in my humble opinion anyway, showed a complete lack of, disres- uh, of, of respect. It would seem he hadn't even taken the time to read what I had repeatedly written, as he made certain statements which suggest he assumes I'm a physicalist, even though I had repeatedly affirmed that I was not. At least not yet. <laughs> anyway, you can judge for yourself, but the point is I think the debate serves as a useful illustration of both how we as Christians should disagree with other Christians, as well as how we should not. Also, even if you're not interested in checking the debate out, I recommend you stop by Theology Web, where, as the website's uh, tagline puts it, we debate theology seriously. (laughs) There really is a ton of conversations on a variety of topics over at Theology Web, a website I believe started by my friend Dee Dee Warren. Even if you decide not to participate, though, there's a lot of conversations that you might find interesting. Anyway, check it out, and do also check this out. 
Hi, this is Phil Nasons from the blog and the podcast, What Color is the Sky in Their World? Formerly known as the Theology Today blog and podcast. It's a blog and podcast dealing with and examining issues that affect each and every one of us from a Christian perspective. You can find us at phillyflash.wordpress.com or at theologytoday.podbean.com. Thanks a lot. My friend Phil Nasons hosts what I think is a great blog and podcast, and as I understand it, he's an incredible tennis instructor. Uh, Maybe I'll have to fly to Greece someday and have him teach me a thing or two. Check out his podcast at theologytoday.podbean.com or visit his blog at phillyflash.wordpress.com. And with that, let's move into today's topic. In the inaugural episode of my podcast, we looked at what the early church fathers said about the resurrection of the dead and its centrality to Christian theology. The Apostles' Creed, Irenaeus' Rule of Faith, the Athanasian Creed, these all affirm corporate belief in the bodily resurrection of the dead. In the first century, Polycarp called those who deny the resurrection the firstborn of Satan. In the second century, Tertullian said that there is nobody who lives so much in accordance with the flesh as they who deny the resurrection of the flesh. And for nearly 2,000 years, Christians have united upon this fundamental essential of the Christian faith that dead men will one day rise from their graves in physical, albeit glorified, bodies, and that Jesus Christ did so three days after his death as the first fruits of resurrection. But there are some who profess to be followers of Jesus who deny that the physical body of Jesus was, or that our bodies will be, raised from the grave. Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, believe Jesus was raised a spirit creature with a non-physical body. And they believe that this is the future for only 144,000 very faithful followers of Christ, with the rest of them raised physically. Similarly, hyperpreterists, in claiming that the resurrection already happened, also teach that Jesus was raised in an immaterial body, or at least some of them do, uh, but they all believe that all people rise in this way. Many theological liberals also share this view of the resurrection of both Jesus and all mankind as well. On August 7, 2010, evangelical Adrian Warnock and liberal Jonathan Clatworthy appeared on the Unbelievable Radio program with Justin Brierley to debate the issue. I'm going to include a link in the show notes so you can listen for yourselves, but I want to play a little bit of what Mr. Clatworthy says about the resurrection so you can hear how one proponent of this spirit body view puts it. Paul never says that Jesus uh, was raised physically. Now, as for... um, uh, uh, people who don't believe in the physical resurrection not being a Christian. Of course, that would include St. Paul. Um, it, the, the disciples experienced the risen Christ. This was, in some sense, a spiritual experience. This was not a, a flesh and blood experience. This was something within the minds of the disciples. Or, or... Well, we only have one first-hand account, and that's Paul. Um, and there, quite clearly, it is um, an experience of the risen Christ uh, without any hint of it being um, a physical body. Well, I think it's rather interesting that you, you would say that Paul doesn't believe in the resurrection in the way that I would understand it. I mean, Paul says quite clearly in 1, 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. I mean, that's pretty clear to me. That- 
does not say he has had a physical resurrection body. You know, I think it's much better to take the view that Paul took, which is that in the next life, um, we have, <clears throat> we are given different bodies um, uh, for our souls, our spirits. This is a spiritual body rather than a physical body. Yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. So you can see that this spirit body view of the resurrection is one which views spiritual, as used in 1 Corinthians 15, as being somehow the opposite of physical. Now, if you're at all familiar with 1 Corinthians 15, you might be amazed, as I am, that someone would so confidently insist that Paul taught that Jesus rose from the dead in a non-physical, spirit-only way. You might be tempted to point to other New Testament authors to prove such a theological liberal wrong, but that's not going to work, at least not in Clatworthy's case. That's because he believes Paul, as the earliest author in the New Testament, taught this view of the resurrection, but that later authors turned it into a physical resurrection. Now, this isn't the case with hyperpreterists and Jehovah's Witnesses, so we'll turn to other authors in the New Testament a little bit later when we look at their arguments. First, however, let's look at what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 to see what he really taught. Verses 1 through 4 read, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, right off the bat, I think it should be obvious that Paul is speaking of a physical, bodily resurrection. He doesn't just say that Christ died, but that he was buried. And immediately following that says he was raised. Buried, raised. It's clear that Paul is hearkening to the tomb in which Christ was placed after his death, but which was found empty three days later. Keep in mind also that Paul says this was according to the scriptures. What would Paul have read from the scriptures? Psalm 16.9 prophetically depicts the Messiah saying, My flesh also will dwell securely, and goes on in verse 10 to say, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. So the scriptures foretold that the Messiah's body his flesh would dwell securely and that it would not decay. This is how Paul himself interpreted that psalm in Acts 13. And he contrasts Jesus' resurrection with King David, who died, was buried with his fathers and rotted. Peter makes the exact same contrast in Acts 2, interpreting the psalm in this way as well. So from the get-go in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is saying very clearly that Jesus was raised bodily from the dead and that the scriptures foretold it. Paul goes on in verses 12 through 16 to link Jesus' resurrection, whatever that meant, with our future resurrection. He, he writes, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith also in vain. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So Paul again makes this connection of verse 20, saying, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. And again in verse 23, Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. So it's important to keep in mind here that what Paul is going to tell us about the resurrection applies both to the resurrection of Jesus as well as to our future resurrection. Now we already saw that from the outset, Paul is speaking here about a physical bodily resurrection resulting in an empty grave. But I think that's also clear from verses 21 and 22. 
He writes, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. You see, when Adam sinned, he began dying and was no longer given access to the tree of life, and eventually he died a physical death. Physical death, therefore, and not just spiritual death, is what entered into the world through Adam. And that which is accomplished by Jesus is contrasted with that. It's a reversal of that. Whereas through Adam came physical death, by Jesus came the resurrection from physical death. In Adam all die a physical death, so also in Christ all will be made alive from physical death. Now, of course, the one who denies bodily resurrection is going to say that here it's talking about spiritual death. And while in isolation that might seem plausible, it's just one of several arguments from this passage, one of which we've already looked at. But Paul writes in verses 35 through 38, saying, But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool! That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body, just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. What Paul just said, and what he goes on to say, deserves very careful attention. When hypothetically asked how the dead are raised, Paul uses an analogy to illustrate the answer to the question. The dead are represented by that which is sown in the analogy, and the resurrection body is represented by the body God gives to that which was sown. Notice something here. The thing which is sown is not something lost or shed by that which dies to be replaced later by something else. No, the thing which is sown is that which dies, and it is that very thing to which God gives a resurrection body. Consider what Paul goes on to say in verses 42 through 44. He writes, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So Paul's saying that in the resurrection, Something which was sown is the very thing which is raised. But what is it that's sown? A perishable body. And that perishable body is that which is later raised, but made different. So although a sown, although sown a perishable body, that very perishable body is itself raised imperishable. Though sown in dishonor, that dishonorable body itself is raised glorified. And although sown a weak body, that weak physical body is itself raised powerful. So going back to Paul's weed analogy then, what is the bare grain that is sown? Is it a human's immaterial spirit or soul, later given a body to replace its former one? No. That thing which is sown is the human's dead physical body. And just as a grain of wheat is buried in the ground and later springs forth from the ground transformed, so too is the human's dead physical body buried in the ground, and at the resurrection it springs forth from the ground transformed. John Gill, commenting on verse 38, writes, From the signification of the word resurrection, which is a raising up of that which has fallen, and if the same body that falls by death is not raised, but another is given, it will not be a resurrection, but a creation. And also from the figurative phrases by which it is expressed, as here by the quickening of seed cast into the earth, and elsewhere by a waking out of sleep, now as it is the same seed that is sown that springs up again, and the same body that sleeps that awakened out of it, 
so it is the same body that is interred in the earth and falls asleep by death that will be quickened and awaked at the resurrection. It is clear from the places from whence the dead will be raised, the repositories of them as death and hell, or the grave and the sea, for none but the same bodies that are laid in the grave or cast into the sea can be said to come forth out of them or delivered up by them. If it is not a resurrection of the same body, but new ones are created, to which the soul will be united, it will not be a resurrection, but a transmigration of souls into other bodies. So you see, this is the significance of Paul's sown and raised language. It is not that a human sheds his body in death, which goes on to rot while the soul is given some second separate body. It is that a human body is, as a seed, buried in the ground, only to rise from the grave in the future, but raised and made glorious. The analogy in that which it is intended to convey could hardly be any clearer. But the liberal, the hyperpreterist, and the Jehovah's Witness are going to point to that last verse we looked at, where Paul writes that it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. They'll say, see, the resurrection body is not a physical body, it's a spiritual one. And sure enough, upon a close reading of the chapter as a whole, one could hardly find anything else uh, other than this single verse that could lead someone like Clatworthy to so confidently insist that Paul had in mind a non-physical resurrection. But is that really what this verse communicates? So here's the thing, that claim assumes that the contrast between the natural body and the spiritual body is a contrast between physical and non-physical, between something material and something immaterial. But that's not really how these words are contrasted elsewhere in the New Testament. The Greek word rendered natural here is, and I'm going to try to pronounce this, but I'm probably going to get it pretty bad. I'm going to try, is psukikos, and really doesn't communicate physicality. Rather, it communicates sensuality or worldliness. For example, in James 3, 14 to 17, we read, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, there's that word, psychikos, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. The contrast here is not between something which is physical and something which is non-physical. <laughs> not at all. In fact, the two things being contrasted are here, both, uh, they're both non-physical. Wisdom. Rather, the contrast is between something which has its origin in earth, a wisdom which is worldly, even demonic. It's between that and a wisdom which is from heaven above. We could take a look also at Jude 1, uh, verses 18 through 21, which reads, In the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, there's psukikos again, devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Again, there's a contrast here. But whereas the last passage used psukikos to contrast two non-physical things, this time it's used to contrast two physical things, namely living, breathing people. Those living, breathing people who cause divisions and are devoid of the spirit are called psukikos, worldly-minded. And this is in contrast with other living and breathing people who love God and have the Holy Spirit. So this is really important to keep in mind. On one hand, two immaterial things, namely wisdom, one is called psukikos in contrast with another. And here in another passage, two things which are both physical, namely living, human, uh, living breathing human beings. One of them is called psukikos. Uh, so, so the word can't be used to contrast something that's non-physical with physical, or at least it can't be assumed to be being used in that way. 
Now, the other Greek word in 1 Corinthians 15 that's rendered spiritual is pneumatikos. And in contrast to psychikos, which communicates an inclination toward worldliness, pneumatikos communicates an inclination toward God and things of the Spirit. This contrast, I I think, is made powerfully clear in 1 Corinthians 2, 12-15, where Paul writes, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man, there's that word uh, psukikos again, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and that he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual, there's the word pneumatikos, appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. So some 13 chapters later, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul contrasts a psukikos, natural thing, with a pneumatikos, or spiritual thing. And some there see a contrast between physical and non-physical. But here, in chapter 2, what is it that's being contrasted? Is it something physical versus something non-physical? No, obviously not at all. Both the natural man and the spiritual man are living, breathing people in physical bodies before their death. But the natural man is the one who, devoid of the Holy Spirit, is unable to understand the things of the Spirit. Whereas the spiritual man is the one who has received the Holy Spirit and thus is able to spiritually appraise all things. In fact, in Galatians 6 verse 1, pneumatikos is used again to refer to living, breathing people, where Paul says, If anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. If spiritual means non-physical, these passages just make no sense at all. So the word spiritual communicates being moved or motivated by or inclined toward or having its origin in the spirit, not the lack of physicality. And the word is used elsewhere in this fashion as well. In Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, believers are told to sing spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Now, what makes a song spiritual in contrast with a song which is not? It couldn't be that the latter is physical, whereas the former is not. After all, both kinds of songs are physical, in that they uh, involve the breath and produce sound. No, a song which is not spiritual is one not motivated by, or inclined toward, or having its origin in, the spirit. When Paul contrasts the natural body with the spiritual body in 1 Corinthians 15, then, he's not saying that what was once physical will become non-physical, He's saying that what once was worldly, in that it lacked the spirit in terms of motivation or inclination or origination, will become spiritual in that it is moved or motivated by, inclined toward, or originating from the spirit. So here's how John Calvin looks at it. He says, Let us, however, always bear in mind what we have seen previously, that the substance of the body is the same. It is the quality only that is here treated of. Let the present quality of the body be called, for the sake of greater plainness, animation. Let the future receive the name of inspiration. For as to the souls now quickening the body, that is affected through the intervention of many helps. For we stand in need of drink, food, clothing, sleep, and other things of a similar nature. Hence, the weakness of animation is clearly manifested. The energy of the spirit, on the other hand, for quickening, will be much more complete, and, consequently, exempted from necessities of that nature. This is the simple and genuine meaning of the Apostle, that no one may, by philosophizing farther, indulge in airy speculations, as those who do, who suppose that the substance of the body will be spiritual. So Calvin views the difference here between natural and spiritual as contrasting the body which requires earthly things to survive with that which is completely animated by the Holy Spirit. 
The former body needs and thus is energized or animated by or through food, drink, clothing, sleep, and so on. But the latter body, the spiritual body, is completely energized by the Holy Spirit and has everything that it needs in him. John Wesley shares this view, writing, It is sown in this world a merely animal body, maintained by food, sleep, and air, like the bodies of brutes, but it is raised of a more refined contexture, needing none of these animal refreshments. Other theologians, however, have not focused on the material needs of the natural body in contrast with the supposed lack of those needs on the part of the spiritual body, and they've instead focused on the inclination of the two bodies. Robert Jameson writes, The Holy Spirit in the spirit of believers, indeed, is an earnest of a superior state, but meanwhile, in the body, the animal soul preponderates. Hereafter, the spirit shall predominate, and the animal soul will be duly subordinate. A, bo a spiritual body is a body wholly molded by the spirit, and its organism not conformed to the lower and animal, but to the higher and spiritual life. Similarly, John Gill wrote, Not as to substance, but as to its quality, it will be changed into a spirit. Our Lord's risen body, to which ours will be conformed, was not a spirit, but as before consisted of flesh and bones. But the body will then be employed in spiritual service, for which it will be abundantly fitted and assisted by the Spirit of God, and will be delighted with spiritual objects. So it seems like Jameson's and Gill's understanding is that whereas the natural body is inclined toward the world, the spiritual body is wholly inclined toward God. Either way, given how natural and spiritual are used elsewhere in the New Testament, what is clear is that the contrast cannot be assumed to be between physical and non-physical. And given Paul's analogy in 1 Corinthians 15, in which the seed which is sown corresponds to the human physical body which is buried, and in which the same thing which is sown rises from the ground in glory, it is very clear that Paul's distinction between natural and spiritual has nothing to do with the substance of the body, but rather its motivation, its inclination, or its origination. But spirit body proponents like Clatworthy might point not to just verse 44, but to verse 45 as well. Here Paul writes, So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Those who insist, like Clatworthy, that Jesus rose in a non-physical way will point to this verse to demonstrate that in his resurrection, Jesus became a spirit. But does Jesus' being said to have become a spirit mean that he became non-physical? Well, no, it can't mean that, given what we've already looked at. But of course, we can't just say, no, it can't mean that, and then fail to offer a better understanding of the verse. So let's try and understand just what Paul means. Paul says that whatever it is that Jesus became, he became something which gives life. Paul likewise speaks of a spirit which gives life in Romans 8, 9-11, which reads, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Notice that Paul uses the phrase Spirit of God and Spirit of Christ uh, being in you interchangeably with Christ being in you. He says believers have Christ in them, but he goes on to explain what he means by that, that they have the Spirit of Christ in them. And notice that Paul says of the one in whom the Spirit of Christ dwells, that although such a person's spirit is alive, his body is dead, all present tense. The believer indwelt by the Holy Spirit has a body which is presently dead and a spirit which is presently alive. But just as Christ was raised from the dead, the Spirit of Christ will one day make our bodies alive. Future tense. That a bodily resurrection is in view is obvious, and we'll see more of that in a moment as we continue in Romans 8. 
First, though, let's take a closer look at verse 11. But before we do, note once again that Spirit of God and Spirit of Christ are used interchangeably in this passage. Only one Spirit is in view. The Spirit of life from verse 2, the Spirit from verses 4 through 6, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ in verse 9, the Spirit of Him and His Spirit who dwells in you in verse 11, the Spirit of God in verse 14, and so on and so on. Paul is not speaking of two different spirits, <laughs> that of God and that of Christ. He's speaking of one and the same Spirit of God, which is also the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. The New Covenant knows nothing of more than one indwelling Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes of the Spirit of God giving gifts to believers, but says there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit, varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. One and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. By one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. If that weren't enough, to see that the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ are one and the same, we can compare Peter's first and second epistles. In 2 Peter 1, verses 20 to 21, Peter writes, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the Holy Spirit of God moved the authors of the Old Testament to prophesy. But look what Peter had written in his previous epistle, in 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them, the Spirit of Christ within them, was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So you see, what Peter calls the Holy Spirit from God, he also calls the Spirit of Christ, the exact same Greek phrase in Romans 8-9, where the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ are used interchangeably. It's clear that there is one and only one Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, which is also the Spirit of Christ. So now, let's take a look at uh, a closer look at verse 11 of Romans 8, because with all of that in mind, this verse causes the became a spirit argument to fall apart. Paul writes, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that is, if the spirit of God dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So you see, the Holy Spirit of God, also called the spirit of Christ, is what gives life to our spirits and what will give life to our bodies. But according to this verse, it was this same spirit through whom God raised Jesus from the dead, and it will be the same spirit through whom God will raise us from the dead in whom the spirit dwells. Do you see the problem? If what Paul meant when he said in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus became a life-giving spirit is that Jesus became a non-physical spirit which gives life, how could that same life-giving spirit be said to have raised him from the dead in the first place? It just doesn't make any sense. He could not have been, at his resurrection, been made into the very thing which raised him from the dead in the first place. So that simply can't be what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 15.45. Now briefly, before we return to that passage, remember that I said that it would become still clearer that Paul had in mind a bodily resurrection when we continue in Romans 8? We'll look at verse 23. He writes, We ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. You see, it is not merely our spirits which will be redeemed. Our very bodies will be redeemed. So, now we return to 1 Corinthians 15. 
If Paul's words can't mean what spirit body proponents claim they mean, just what did Paul mean when he said Jesus became a life-giving spirit? Well, let me tell you what I think first, and then we'll look at some alternatives. Verse 45 begins with, So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. This harkens back to Genesis 2-7, which reads, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. God created an inanimate body of dust, and then breathed into its nostrils the breath of life, and it was at that point that the, animate, that the inanimate rather, became animate. The unliving became living. Adam became a living being when God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, the word breath is the Hebrew word neshama and means, well, breath. It's, all, it's uh, also used in Job 27, 3, where the King James Version renders Job as saying, All the while my breath is in me. But that verse goes on to say, And the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. The word spirit there is the Hebrew word ruach which generally means wind, or, like neshama, means breath. It's the word used in Genesis 6.17 in which God says, I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. And the two Hebrew words are combined in Genesis 7.22 where it is said that of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. So to a certain extent, neshama and ruach are related both referring to the breath or wind from God which animates a man or makes him living. So what happened with Adam in Genesis 2-7? The breath or spirit of life was breathed into the nostrils of an inanimate Adam and he became living. Now bear with me here, I'm going somewhere with this. Returning to 1 Corinthians 15-45, Paul goes on to say, The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The word spirit there is the Greek word pneuma, and like the Hebrew words neshama and ruach, the word means wind or breath. It is how the translators of the Septuagint, which Paul was quoting in the first part of 1 Corinthians 15.45, often rendered the word ruach. In 2 Samuel 22.16, for example, we read, The foundations of the world were laid bare by the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. That word breath there is the Hebrew ruach, rendered pneuma in the Greek Septuagint. It's also how the word neshama was sometimes translated. In 1 Kings 17, 17, we read, Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick, and his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. That word breath is the Hebrew neshama, <laughs> rendered pneuma in the Greek Septuagint. So here's what I think Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15:45. Paul says that the first Adam became a living being by the breath of God. But the last Adam became the breath of God, which makes men alive. Not in the sense of becoming the Holy Spirit, but in the sense of having ascended to the Father, sending the Holy Spirit to indwell believers, which as we've seen makes them spiritually alive and which will make their bodies alive at the resurrection. In John 14, Jesus makes the connection between his sending the Holy Spirit, giving life to those in whom he indwells. In verses 16 through 19, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. After a little while the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, because I live, you will live also. So just as Romans 8 connected Christ in you and the spirit of Christ in you with being made alive, 
So too does Jesus in this passage connect the Holy Spirit being in you and Christ coming to you with being made alive. And he says that this will happen when he, having ascended to the Father, sends the church the Holy Spirit. Peter makes a similar connection in Acts 2, 32-33. Peter said, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. When Jesus then was resurrected, and therefore ascended, or thereafter ascended to the Father and was exalted to his right hand, he received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit and poured him forth upon the church. It is in this sense, I think anyway, in which Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.45 that Jesus became a life-giving spirit. Whereas Adam became alive by the breath of God, Jesus became the breath of God which makes men alive, in that he sent the Holy Spirit to the church by which men are made alive. But that's just how I understand the verse. I could be wrong. The idea is a little bit underdeveloped, and there may be issues that I'm going to have to tackle if I'm going to continue to hold that view. There are alternatives, however, which nevertheless affirm what, that what Paul teaches clearly in this passage and elsewhere is that Jesus' body was raised physically from the grave. John Gill outlines a few possibilities, and he begins with something similar to my view, writing, Now he has made a quickening spirit, which some understand of the Holy Spirit, which filled the human nature of Christ, raised him from the dead, and will quicken our mortal bodies at the last day. If this is referring to something like my view, the important point to keep in mind is that it is not as though Jesus Christ became the Holy Spirit, but rather that he sent the church his Holy Spirit. He goes on to list some other possibilities. Others understand of the divine nature of Christ to which his flesh, or human nature, was united, and which gave life, rigor, and virtue to all his actions and sufferings as man, and by which he was quickened when put to death in the flesh, and by which he will quicken others another day. So in this view, life-giving spirit does not refer to the totality of Jesus, but to his divine nature. I find issues with that, but there's another view. He lists a third possibility, the one it appears that he personally holds, saying, Though rather, I think, it is to be understood of his spiritual body, of his body, not as it was made of the virgin, for that was a natural or an animal one. It was conceived and bred and born as animal bodies are. It grew and increased and was nourished with meat and drink and sleep and rest and was subject to infirmities and to death itself as our bodies be. But it is to be understood of it as raised from the dead, when it was made a spiritual body, for which reason it is called a spirit. Not that it was changed into a spirit, for it still remained flesh and blood, but because it was no more supported in an animal way, nor subject to those weaknesses that animal bodies are, but lives as spirits or angels do. And a quickening one, not only because it has life itself, but because by virtue of the saints' union to it, as it subsists in the divine person of the Son of God, their bodies will be quickened to the last day and made like unto it, spiritual bodies. In Gill's view, then, that Jesus became a life-giving spirit means he was given a spiritual body, which we've already seen doesn't mean non-physical. John Calvin seems to take a position similar to mine, not necessarily seeing became a life-giving spirit as contrasting the breath of life which animated the body of Adam like I do, but like me, seeing the reference as being to the Holy Spirit sent to the church. He wrote, Moses relates that Adam was furnished with a living soul. Christ, on the other hand, is endowed with a life-giving spirit. Now, it is a much greater thing to be life, or the source of life, than simply to live. It must be observed, however, that Christ did also, like us, become a living soul. But besides the soul, the Spirit of the Lord was also poured out upon him, that by his power he might rise again from the dead and raise up others. This, therefore, must be observed in order that no one may imagine that the Spirit was in Christ in place of a soul. 
And independently of this, the interpretation of this passage may be taken from the 8th chapter of the Romans, where the Apostle declares that the body indeed is dead on account of sin, and we carry in us the elements of death, but that the Spirit of Christ, who raised him up from the dead, dwelleth also in us, and that he is life to raise up also one day from the dead. From this you see that we have living souls inasmuch as we are men, but that we have the life-giving Spirit of Christ poured out upon us by the grace of regeneration. In short, Paul's meaning is that the condition that we obtain through Christ is greatly superior to the lot of the first man, because a living soul was conferred upon Adam in his own name and in that of his posterity, but Christ has procured for us the Spirit who is life. So like me, Calvin sees Jesus as becoming a life-giving Spirit in that he sends the Holy Spirit which had been poured out upon him, and it is this Spirit which gives life. Another possible understanding of the verse is explained by Norman Geisler and Thomas Howe in their book, When Critics Ask, a popular handbook on Bible difficulties. They write, Life-giving spirit does not speak of the nature of the resurrection body, but of the divine origin of the resurrection. Jesus' physical body came back to life only by the power of God. So Paul is speaking about its spiritual source, not its physical substance as a material body. In summation, the resurrection body is called spiritual and life-giving spirit because its source is the spiritual realm, not because its substance is immaterial. Christ's supernatural resurrection body is from heaven, as Adam's natural body was of the earth. But just as the one from earth also has an immaterial soul, even so the one from heaven also has a material body. So to Geisler and Howe, that Jesus became a life-giving spirit does not mean he became non-physical. It is speaking of the source of the resurrection body as being from heaven. Now, in my humble opinion, I think that my understanding of the verse, seemingly shared at least in part by John Calvin, is the intended meaning of the text. But whether I'm right or whether one of the other views expressed by these commentators is the correct one, that Jesus is said to have become a life-giving spirit can in no way be assumed to mean that Jesus became a non-physical spirit creature, or that his resurrection body lacked physicality. We're left then with one final objection on the part of spirit body proponents originating in this passage. In verse 50, Paul writes, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Jehovah's Witnesses, hyperpreterists, and theological liberals may point to this verse and say that Paul says the resurrection simply cannot be physical, for flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. A body made of flesh and blood, they argue, therefore cannot go to heaven. Now again, we've already seen that what Paul is talking about is the dead physical body rising from the grave as he talks elsewhere about the mortal body being given life and being redeemed. And as we've seen, the phrase spiritual body and the phrase life-giving spirit do not change Paul's meaning. Therefore, we know that the statement, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, simply can't mean that the resurrection body can't be physical. Well, so what does it mean? Well, I think the answer is pretty obvious, given the context, and I'll explain that answer, citing a variety of commentators in a moment. But defending the obvious answer, or maybe undergirding it securely might be a better way of putting it, is arguably a bit more difficult. And I've considered a few different ways of doing it, and I've seen it done a few different ways. The reality is I'm not certain any of them are foolproof in and of themselves. And so if I were challenged on this verse, I would first go through everything we've looked at so far to demonstrate that a physical, bodily resurrection is what's in view. Then, although my method of demonstrating that this verse can't be assumed to mean what that challenge assumes it means might not be ironclad, it would at least comport with the rest of the passage, unlike the view held by the challenger. That said, I encourage you to research how other theologians and apologists defend the historic Christian view from this challenge. I say other, intending to lump myself only in the loosest possible sense. In the meantime, here's how I'll do it. 
Verse 50 is a parallelism in which two contrasts are parallel with each other but communicate a similar meaning. Paul writes, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. He goes on to use a very similar parallelism in verse 53, where he writes, This perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Note that the first half of verse 53 uses the exact same language as the second half of verse 50. One verse explains what a man is, uh, what a man in his current state cannot inherit, using two parallels. The other verse explains what a man must become, presumably to inherit that which is mentioned in the other verse, again using two parallels, one of which is the same contrast between perishable and imperishable. Therefore, since verse 50's, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable, corresponds to verse 53's, the perishable must put on the imperishable, I think verse 50's, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, corresponds to verse 53's, this, mor this mortal must put on immortality. So, flesh and blood is not being used as a reference specifically to the material substances which make up a human being, but it's being used as an idiom referring to human natural mortality. And I don't think this is all that dissimilar from how the phrase is used elsewhere in the New Testament. In Matthew 16, verses 16 to 17, Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, it seems to me that Jesus' point wasn't that the mindless, matter, uh, mindless masses of matter which make up Simon's body did not reveal this foundational truth of Christianity to him. Rather, I think Jesus' point is that the idea did not originate from Peter himself and his mortal human nature. In Galatians 1, 15-17, Paul wrote, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Now again, it seems unreasonable to me that Paul's point was that he did not consult mindless masses of matter uh, which make up his body. Instead, I think it's obvious that he meant he did not turn to his own understanding, uh, the understanding originating from his mortal human nature. In Ephesians 6, 11-13, Paul wrote, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Now, certainly one possible understanding of this is that Paul is saying our struggle is not against what, again, I'm calling the mindless masses of matter uh, which make up human beings. But I think that the contrast between flesh and blood and that which is not flesh and blood is, is possibly the difference between mortality and immortality. If that's not the case, and if in fact the substances are what are intended here, then all that means is that flesh and blood, the phrase flesh and blood, is used in different ways in Scripture, which is fine. Now, finally, in Hebrews 2.14... The author writes, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. As was the case in the previous passage, I suppose it's possible that the author is simply saying that Jesus took upon himself the substances of flesh and blood. But I think that the author is really getting at the fact that Jesus became mortal. After all, he goes on to say Jesus took on flesh and blood that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. So the focus isn't on the substance, but the mortality. So, in most or all of these passages, 
The phrase flesh and blood appears to be an idiom referring to human mortality, the mortal human nature, and not specifically the substances which make up a human body. With this in view, the corresponding parallels in 1 uh, 1 Corinthians 15.50 and verse 53 make sense. Just as the perishable and imperishable from verse 50 corresponds to the perishable and imperishable from verse 53, so too does flesh and blood and kingdom of God in verse 50 correspond to mortal and immortality in verse 53, respectively. So, Paul's point in verse, 50, uh, in verse 50 is not that the material substances of flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Rather, the mortal human nature, left unchanged, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. When he goes on in verse 51 and 52 to say we will all be changed, he isn't saying we will, ch will be changed from physical into non-physical. He is saying our physical bodies will be changed from being mortal to being immortal, from being perishable to being imperishable. Physicality simply isn't the point of this verse at all. Now, it seems to me that commentators agree with me. John Gill wrote, Blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, or flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This shows the necessity there is of a difference between the body that is now and that which will shall be, which the apostle has so largely insisted on and so clearly proved and explained in the preceding verses. Because the body, as it is now, is not capable of possessing the heavenly glory. Were it to be introduced into heaven in the condition it is now, it would break in pieces and crumble into dust. It would not be able to bear the glory of that state and place. By flesh and blood is meant not human nature as to the substance of it, or as consisting of flesh and blood, for that can and does inherit the kingdom of God, but the human nature, or body, so and so qualified, is here meant, either as corrupted with sin, for without holiness and righteousness no man shall see the Lord, or enter into and possess the kingdom of heaven, or it's meant flesh and blood, or a human body, as it is now supported in this animal life, with meat and drink. And as it is frail and mortal and subject to death, in which, the, uh, in which sense the phrase is used in scripture. Saints in their frail mortal bodies, such as they are now, are not capable of enjoying the heavenly glory. Heirs of it they may be, and are now whilst in this frail and mortal state. But inherit, that is, possess and enjoy it, they cannot. As not without holiness of soul, so not without immortality of body. And therefore it is necessary that the body should rise different in qualities from though the same in substance with the present body, that it should rise incorruptible, glorious, powerful, and spiritual, that it may be fitted for and be able to bear the exceeding weight of glory in the other world. Now, I'm sorry that that was such a long quote, but I think that it does justice to what I'm claiming is meant by this verse. A much shorter quote from John Calvin. Uh, he wrote, Flesh and blood, however, we must understand according to the condition in which they at present are. For our flesh will be a participant in the glory of God, but it will be as renewed and quickened by the Spirit of Christ. So again, we're talking about a difference of quality, not substance. Robert Jameson also writes, Corruptible nature as our present animal-souled bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Not merely is the change of body possible, but it is necessary. The spirit extracted from the dregs of wine does not so much differ from them as the glorified man does from the mortal man of mere animal flesh and blood. The resurrection body will be still a body, though spiritual, and substantial, substantially <laughs> retaining the personal identity. So, this then is the meaning I said earlier is obvious from the passage, given the context, and I do think it's obvious. Not that the material substances called flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, but that the human condition, human nature, that mortality, must be transformed in order to inherit the kingdom of God. And whereas liberals, hyperpreterists, and Jehovah's Witnesses understand this verse in a way which contradicts what Paul has been saying in this passage and elsewhere, my view, and that of the commentators I've cited, agrees with it entirely.
So let's review what we've learned from what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. First, Paul opens a chapter saying Jesus was buried, then raised, seeming allu uh, seemingly alluding to the empty tomb. Beyond that, he says the scriptures foretold this, such as Psalm 16, which prophetically depicts the Messiah saying his flesh would dwell securely and would not be left to the grave to decay. Second, Paul uses a farming analogy in which the seed which is buried is the very thing which sprouts from the ground, albeit changed. In the analogy, that which is sown, the seed, corresponds to the perishable body, which itself rises imperishable. So the very thing which goes down into the ground, a physical body, is that which rises up from it, a physical body, but one which has had its qualities changed from perishable to imperishable, from mortal to immortal, from weak to powerful. Third, Paul links the resurrection of Jesus with the resurrection of people, so Jesus rose physically as will humans. Fourth, that the physical body which is sown is raised a spiritual body does not mean it is non-physical, uh, for that's not how the words are used. Rather, it is sown dependent upon or inclined toward earthly things, but it is raised dependent upon or inclined toward the spirit. Fifth, that Jesus, said, uh, that Jesus is said to have become a life-giving spirit does not mean he became a non-physical spirit creature. Rather, whereas Adam was a man made living, Jesus is a man who makes alive, having sent his Holy Spirit to the church after he ascended to the Father. Indeed, that's what we see in Romans 8, where Paul says exactly the same thing, saying that while our mortal bodies are in a sense dead, now they will be made alive when our bodies are redeemed. And finally, that Paul says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God does not mean that bodies physically comprised of the material substances of flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Rather, he means that the mortal human nature must be transformed and made immortal. Therefore, a liberal like Clatworthy, who confidently insists that Paul taught that Jesus rose with a non-physical spirit body, and that later authors developed the idea into one of physical resurrection, such a liberal is just plainly wrong, as are Jehovah's Witnesses and hyperpreterists who might agree with the characterization of what Paul taught. No, Paul taught that, jo that Jesus rose with a physical body, but one transformed from human mortality to heavenly immortality, just as we will. Which, Paul says, is that which was delivered to him, and which is also what is recorded by the authors of the Gospels. But whereas someone like Clatworthy admits that at least some of the Gospels teach that Jesus rose bodily from the tomb, Jehovah's Witnesses and Hyperpreterists, or at least those Hyperpreterists who deny the physical resurrection of Jesus, will not even acknowledge that. And as we're approaching an hour, let me make one final argument, that while unconvincing to a liberal who thinks the Gospel authors taught something different than what Paul taught, it ought to be convincing to the Hyperpreterist or Jehovah's Witness who sees the Bible teaching the same thing consistently. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples behind closed doors, showing them his nail-pierced hands and his spear-pierced side, even going so far as to allow doubting Thomas to physically touch those wounds. <laughs> this really ought to be enough, but the Jehovah's Witnesses in desperation offer up an explanation which, they say, allows for their spirit-body understanding of Jesus' resurrection. In You Can Live Forever in Paradise on Earth, they say this, Many persons believe that Christ took his fleshly body to heaven. They point to the fact that when Christ was raised from the dead, his fleshly body was no longer in the tomb. Also, after his death, Jesus appeared to his disciples in a fleshly body to show them that he was alive. Does this not prove that Christ was raised alive in the same body in which he was put to death? Did not the disciples find the, his tomb empty? Well, they did because God removed Jesus' body. But since the Apostle Thomas was able to put his hand into the, into the hole in Jesus' side, does that not show that Jesus was raised from the dead in the same body that was nailed to the stake? No, for Jesus simply materialized or took on a fleshly body as angels had done in the past.
While Jesus appeared to Thomas in a body similar to the one in which he was put to death, he also took on different bodies when appearing to his followers. Thus Mary Magdalene at first thought that Jesus was a gardener. At other times his disciples did not at first recognize him. So let's address these counter-arguments. <clears throat> first, did God merely remove Jesus' body from the tomb? Well, I don't think so, and I think the contrast in Mark 16.6 between laid and risen, go check that out, illustrates that. However, it's admittedly not a very powerful argument, so I'm not going to belabor that issue. Second, did Jesus simply materialize or take on a fleshly body, as angels had done in the past, but had he actually risen a spirit? This, it seems to me, is very clearly not the case. In Luke 24, verses 36 to 40, we read this. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to him, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. Now remember, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that when Paul says Jesus became a life-giving spirit, it, became, it means that he became non-physical. But here in Luke 24, the disciples to whom Jesus appears think at first that they were seeing a spirit. Think about this for a moment. If the Jehovah's Witness argument from 1 Corinthians 15.45 were true, and if Jesus literally became a spirit, then the disciples were absolutely right when they thought that they were seeing one. But what does Jesus go on to say? A spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Jesus is explicitly contradicting Jehovah's Witness doctrine. He's saying, I'm not a spirit. And here's the proof. Now, the Jehovah's Witness might counter, saying that what the disciples thought they saw was specifically an angel or demon. But we just read that they, that they say angels have materialized and taken on fleshly bodies in the past. So how does Jesus prove he's not an angel or demon by showing them that he has flesh and bones? It's just completely absurd. No, look, Jesus says, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have. The me, then, is not a spirit. Jesus himself did not simply materialize in bodily form briefly. He himself was material, just as he was when he died. Finally, does the fact that Jesus was not always immediately recognized in his resurrected form prove that he was not raised physically from the dead? Well, no. In Luke 24, 13-35, we read of one such account, and nowhere is it said that Jesus did not look like he did at his death. Verse 16 tells us their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And then in verse 31, it says their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Jesus is not said to have looked differently. Rather, the disciples were prevented from recognizing him. In John 20, verses 1-17, to we have the account of the risen Jesus appearing to Mary. Verse 4 tells us she did not know that the man she saw was Jesus, and verse 15 says she supposed him to be the gardener. But look at what uh, verse 1 says. Mar uh, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. And there's no indication that the sky had gotten all that much brighter by the time she brings the other disciples back. And in verse 11, we're told that she was weeping. So in the dark eyes full of tears, she doesn't immediately recognize Jesus, not until he calls her name anyway. <laughs> Nothing suggests Jesus' body appeared differently than, than it did at his death. In John 21, several disciples are about a hundred yards from shore in the Sea of Tiberias, fishing. When Jesus appears on the shore, and verse 4 says the disciples did not know that it was Jesus, well, it's easily understandable how out at sea one would not recognize someone standing a football field's length away on the shore. Particularly if, as verse 4 tells us, uh, day is only just beginning to break. 
But, but go on. It says, From the shore, still unrecognized, Jesus tells the disciples to cast their nets into the sea. And whereas all night they had failed to catch anything, all of a sudden the net was so full of fish they couldn't pull it up. It's at that point in verse 7 that John realizes the person on the shore is the risen Lord. Although John couldn't recognize Jesus' appearance from the distance, the miracle made John realize who he was. So the fact that Jesus wasn't always immediately recognized after his resurrection in no way suggests his appearance was all that fundamentally different than it was at his death. Beyond the conditions we've looked at already, the disciples did not expect Jesus to rise, did not understand that he had predicted he would die and rise again. So we can easily understand why he was sometimes not immediately recognized for who he was. So I hope you found this helpful. Uh, as we've seen, Paul was delivered the gospel which included the bodily resurrection of Christ. And he taught that this is how we too will rise. Just as a grain of wheat goes into the ground and rises from it changed, so too will our physical bodies go into the ground and rise from it changed. Still physical, but imperishable. Still material, but immortal. Just as Jesus appeared to the disciples and proved to them he was physically alive, so too will we be able to physically touch and feel our own bodies. This is the hope of the Christian. Not some ethereal, immaterial life in heaven, but glorified physical existence on the new earth. And you know, something just dawned on me. Imagine for a moment what it will be like when you rise and your loved ones rise, and you'll be able to physically embrace them. Imagine what it will be like when, as Mercy Me puts it, in I can only imagine, you walk by Jesus' side. I'm being completely honest when I say I'm getting goosebumps right now, as I imagine it. Now, I don't really know how to close this out. Uh, I'm not eloquent or creative, so I think that I'll just read what I think is a powerful passage from Scripture. The end of the chapter we've been focusing on, in fact. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 58. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. With that, I'll bid you adieu. And for those of you who celebrate Christmas, I wish you a merry one. And a happy new year, after which I'll return for whatever turns out to be the next episode of the Theapologetics Podcast. Until then. Christ is risen from the dead. We are one with sin.